Grace and peace, brothers and sisters and friends. This morning, we will be in Matthew chapter 28. Starting on Good Friday, we took a break from Pastor Dan's series in Genesis and looked at the passion of Christ in Matthew. Last Sunday, Pastor Dan preached on the resurrection of our Savior from Matthew. And today, we're going to look at our King's commission here at the end of Matthew. So I trust you have turned to Matthew 28. We're going to start in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. As I was studying this passage for this morning, I was struck with four pictures Four snapshots. But these four pictures, they're really just parts of one larger picture. It's similar to when you've seen the cityscape picture broken up into four panels and spread across a wall. Each one is an individual picture, but you can't tell what city it is unless you see them all together. You might not even tell, be able to tell if it's a cityscape if you just look at one. You have to see all four of these pictures together to see the one larger picture. In the text this morning, that's what we find. We find, we see four pictures, and these four pictures show us one truth. In them, we see weak disciples. We see a reigning king. We see ascending king, and we see the with you king. And what it shows us, though there are weak disciples, They are sent, and they are under the reign of one who has power and presence with them. What it shows us, the point, is that we, and these disciples, but we can be disciple-making disciples by the power and the presence of our king. That's our point. That's That's what these four pictures together show us. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text and we're going to look at these pictures. We're going to see the weak disciples, the reigning king, the sending king, and the with you king. And what we'll see is that without one of these pictures, the mission does not work. You have to have all four. But because of the weak disciples, we see that they have to have the power and presence of the king. But it's through that that they can fulfill the king's commission. So look back with me, starting in verse 16, and we're going to look at the weak disciples. 
Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. So, just get this picture in your mind. There's these 11 disciples, and they're going to some mountain miles away from where they are in Jerusalem. It's actually expected, if we're reading through Matthew, we see that the angel, what's he tell Mary and Mary? Go tell his disciples to go to Galilee. And then they run into Jesus, and he's like, oh, hey. And he tells them, go tell my brothers, go to Galilee. So we expect them to do this, but we kind of have to ask, I wonder what this walk was like to Galilee. They're probably a little nervous. They're probably a little excited. They're also probably a little hesitant. They're probably nervous because when Jesus was taken to be crucified, the text tells us that all the disciples left him and fled. Not some, but all. And there's only 11 of them. That's a reminder. One of them betrayed him. And now they are unwhole. They are not the 12 that they were. They are incomplete. So surely they're a little nervous. But what did Jesus call them in verse 10? My brothers. So surely they're a little excited too. Maybe Jesus has good news. He's calling us. He wants us to come see him. He called us his brothers. But at the same time, Mary and Mary is the one that saw him. Can we, like, we're just taking the word of someone else. So there must be some little hesitancy, hesitancy because they know he is dead. So these disciples are moving forward. They're going to this mountain, excited, nervous, and hesitant. And when they get there, what do they see? They see Jesus is alive. They see the resurrected Savior standing right before them, personally. It's not just some kind of angelic being. It's not a vision. It is Jesus. Jesus is standing there himself, their rabbi, their teacher, their brother. And so they worship him. The resurrected Christ beholding him causes immediate Worship, but at the same time, they doubted. Do you see that? They worship him, and some doubted. Some is just a word we throw in there. It, it really implies all of them doubted. They doubted. These men who stand, or rather, more likely, lay on their face before the risen Christ doubted. They were called disciples, they're called his brothers, and yet they still doubt. I think what this does is it paints a picture for us, the first picture, a picture of weak disciples. These men have faith. They traveled by the word of the Lord given through a messenger to go see God. They're just like Abraham. They leave where they are based on the promise that there will be God waiting for them when they get there. They have faith and they leave where they are. They see Christ and yet some still doubt it. This is a picture of weak disciples. This is a picture of real disciples. This is a picture of you and me, friends. This is us. We too, even while we worship, will face doubts. 
The Christian life, the life of a disciple, is not free of doubt, but it is worship-filled despite doubt. It is worship-filled despite doubt. Disciples live their lives between worship and doubt, or better yet, mixed in worship and doubt. Christians are both believers and doubters. We are adoring and we are wondering. We are trusting and yet somewhere we are still questioning. I think of the father in Mark 9. You think, do, you, do you know that story? The father in Mark 9, he brings his child to Jesus. And he says, oh Lord, if you can, heal him. He has an unclean spirit. He keeps rolling himself into the fire, almost dying. If you can, heal him, Lord. And Jesus says, if I can. And he tells him, all things are possible for one who believes. And so what does the father say? He cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. He worshiped and believed, yet he still had doubt. And what does Jesus do? He heals the boy. He still heals the boy. It's because it wasn't the quality of that man's belief, but the one whom he believed upon. It was not the faith of the Christian that perfects his faith. It is Christ himself. So, when we face doubt, feel no shame or fear. God does not judge you on the quality of your faith, but on the one on whom your faith rests. Jesus, the perfect Savior, who had perfect faith for you and perfect righteousness in your place. We believe upon Jesus, and in the midst of our worship, we have doubt. We and these disciples are weak worshipers, and that's okay, because his power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus does not cast away those who doubt, so don't be discouraged, but know that the weak disciple is not the whole picture. Remember, this is the first panel. There's another picture to come. Immediately, right beside the weak disciple, we see the reigning king. Look back, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So these weak disciples, worshiping him with doubt and praise, and Jesus comes to them. And look at his response. It just says he came to them. It's actually he, he came toward them. He pressed in. He leaned down to them comfortably, gently comes to them. And what's he do? Does he rebuke? Does he chide? Does he say, get up, stop doubting? He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. On the high level, Jesus is saying, fear not, doubtful man. I have all authority. Fear not, I am king. We, weak worshipers, are welcomed by our sovereign Savior, friends. He bends down, he comes near, and he doesn't chide. He says, look to me. Look at who I am. 
Now, what does the sovereignty that he's comforting his disciples with, what does it include? What does it mean? Well, first of all, his reign includes supreme authority. Authority is not a new concept to Matthew. If we had read all the way through Matthew, we would see all throughout that Jesus was constantly demonstrating his authority. When he healed people, when he casted out demons, when he judged, and when he forgave sins, he's constantly displaying his authority. But now he adds a super significant word, a very small word, all. He says, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is not necessarily a new authority, but it is a new level of authority. It's the highest level possible. It is supreme authority. And by authority, he's saying the right to control, the right to command, absolute power, the control and governance of the world, the capability, might, and power. That is what Jesus holds as the reigning king. He is the CEO of the universe. All power is his. All authority is his. That's what it means first. Second, his authority, his reign is all-encompassing. There's not a square inch in the cosmos that he does not hold and have control upon. It is in heaven He's over all the spiritual forces of creation. He's over the realm of God. There is not an angel, a demon. Satan himself is not outside the rule of Christ. This means that he has the power to save. This means he has the power to give life to the dead. It means he has the power to put his spirit in the dead. There is no principality or power or ruler of darkness that will stop him. He has all authority in heaven and he has all authority on earth. Every ruler of man is under King Jesus. Everyone. He appoints and he removes. He upholds and he tears them down. He knows the unjust and he will repay them. He comforts those under tyranny and those faced with oppressors. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. The government shall be upon his shoulders, upheld and steered by his sovereign hand. He is the reigning king in heaven and on earth. That is who the second picture is, the reigning Christ with the crown and all power, right beside these weak disciples. And I don't know of a more needed reminder for all people at all times in history we're not unique, friends. It's not any different than it was since Cain and Abel. We're not unique now. But all people at all times need to hear this. There's a constant presence of evil. Wicked rulers, persist persistence of sinful, abusive leaders. We need to know that Jesus is king. We need to remember that. He is reigning. And nothing, no scandal, no war, and no one, no politician, and no dictator is outside of his control. That doesn't mean that everything's hunky-dory, but it does mean 
that even in our doubt and weakness, in our picture, the reigning king's hand is holding us tight and firm. And there is nothing that will overcome his authority. That's the refrain of the Psalms. Just just read the Psalter. This is the comfort of God's people. This should be our comfort. Think of Psalm 47. Starting in verse 2, the sons of Korah write, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a soul. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The principles of the, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. All the defenses, all the protection, all the authority belongs to God. He is highly exalted. The point is, our Savior, as the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, is our comfort as his weak disciples. We have no reason to fear or fret. The world around us, we have no reason to fear or fret the world around us because our Savior is on his throne. We may be weak, but he is strong. We may lose all that we have, but he has the authority to give us the inheritance of the child of God. We may lose our life, but he has the authority to give us life that can never be taken away. Beside the picture of us is him, the weak disciples upheld by the reigning king. Now even still, that's a, that's a good couple pictures, but there's more. This still isn't all the pictures. There's something bigger happening here. He doesn't just comfort us and strengthen us for our own sake. Instead, we see beside the picture of the reigning king that it's for his sake to send us as the sending king. Look back at verse 19. We're going to start in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So in this picture, we see a new picture of our king. We see the sending king. For the first time in the passage, there's an actual command. He's telling his disciples to do something. However, what we see is that this is not an easy task. It's actually an impossible task for his disciples to go do. In verse 19, he starts by saying, be going, be moving, move out. This is a, think military, move out soldiers, go. It is clear call for the disciples not to stay still. We're not supposed to just stay still Instead, we are to go, but we must know why we're supposed to go. If you just go with no point, no knowing of what you're supposed to do when you get there, don't go, right? There's no point in going if you don't know what you're going to go do. So we go to make disciples. That's the command. Going is just how we do, like one thing that we do while we do it. But what we do is we make disciples. The one command in the whole sentence, go make disciples, 
The command's not just to go talk about Jesus. It's not to preach the gospel and plant churches. It's not to just do good, although those things are all assumed. Instead, it is to make disciples. That is the command. Go make disciples. Make converts. Well, that changes it. Go make disciples. Make converts. Friends, that's an impossible task. That cannot be done. I can't make someone believe in Jesus. I can't make a heart that is at enmity with God love God. I cannot make a dead man come to life. I can't make a disciple. How do I do this? Well, not only that, though, who are we supposed to make into disciples? All the nations. Not some of the nations, not the nations nearby, most of the nations, the nations that speak your language, all the nations. So the impossible just became more impossible, if that's even possible, I don't know. Nonetheless, it's impossible. How do we do that? Well, there's a key word. Do you see it? Therefore. Therefore. Go therefore and make disciples. This therefore shows us that this command is not for us to just do on our own, but it's a command that we can do because of something else, because of someone else. That something is the authority of Christ that we just saw in the last picture, the reigning king. We can make disciples through the reign of our king. See, because Jesus is the king and he has all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth, this impossible task is no longer impossible. He has all authority. He's the Lord, and salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives life to the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He allows the deaf to hear. He's the one who gives life, and he is the one who makes disciples. So when we hear this command, we're like, all right, we can do this because our king will. Our king will do it. And he can do it because it's upon him that salvation depends. It's upon his name that salvation is given. Because while we were still sinners, Pastor Dan led us through a confession of sin. We are dead in our sin. Dead. He still died for us while we were still sinners. Paying the penalty for our death and rising, showing that he has overcome sin. He has overcome death. And he has overcome the enemy. And so he can give that victory for all who believe upon him. It is through him and by him that disciples can be made. It is Jesus, friends. It's not me. It's not you. It's not your favorite pastor. It's not the best tract. It's not the best resource. It's not pragmatics. It is Jesus that makes disciples. And because he has all authority on earth, there is no boundary that keeps him out. There's no keep out signs for Jesus. 
There's nothing that he cannot overcome. There's no dictator that he cannot come under and save the souls under the oppressive thumb of that dictator. There is no one nowhere outside of his reach because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. There is nothing that stops him. All can be reached and all will be reached. Think about it, friends. You are all Gentiles sitting in Indiana. I almost said Missouri. You're in Indiana, sitting in Indiana, thousands of miles away from this small little mountaintop in Galilee. You are a testimony that there is nothing and no one that will stop this king from calling his people to him. Pastor Dan showed us last week that Jesus was not containable. They couldn't put him in the tomb and keep him in there. They tried to seal it, but like Dan said, from the outside. He burst out of the tomb, raised from the dead. He is not containable. And now these ragtag, weak disciples on a mountain in Galilee are going to conquer the world because their king is king of the world. The gospel is not containable as well. Jesus is not containable and neither is his message. It is going to go out and it will not stop because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So what this means is that therefore should fill us with confidence. Like that is the most confident, confidence building word in this sentence. We have confidence. Our resources are not meager. We don't have to like scrounge, and I don't know if we're gonna be able to make it through this. No, our king is reigning over the universe. Our resources are limitless. They're not running out because he is reigning. And so we go make disciples. We can do it by his power. And there's more, and we're gonna come back to it. But I wanna stop in just a couple applications from this. First, if we're to understand the words of Jesus rightly here in Matthew, then we understand that the church has one mission. And this is very important for us to get. Because all through history, again, this is not a new thing, but all through history and still today, we're always trying to redefine what the church should be doing. But as one commentator wrote, this is a long quote, so just hang with me, but it's too good not to read. One commentator wrote, if God's primary purpose for the saved were loving fellowship, he would take believers immediately to heaven, where spiritual fellowship is perfect, unhindered by sin, disharmony, or loneliness. If his primary purpose for the saved were the learning of his word, he would also take believers immediately to heaven where his word is perfectly known and understood. And if God's primary purpose for the saved were to give him praise, he would again take believers immediately to heaven, where praise is perfect and unending. There is only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on earth, to seek and save the lost. We have one mission. Our mission is not to change the societal structures to solve world crises. It is not whatever else people think the church should be doing. 
our primary mission, what we must be doing is make disciples, equipping them to address other problems, but make disciples. That's where we start. We make disciples. We must not become distracted with everything in the world that can be done, but instead we must do what must be done, and that is our king's commission. Go make disciples. First application. Second is a question. Are you doing this? Are we making disciples of all the nations? Is this what we hold as our mission? Are you doing this? If you are, praise God. And another question, who are you trusting while you do it? Do you trust your ways and your powers and your words, or do you trust your reigning Savior who says he will do it? I just encourage your heart, trust your Savior as you do it. And if you're not, have confidence, friend. Have confidence. We are the weak disciples in the first picture, but we are right beside, upheld by our reigning king. Have confidence that he will make disciples even through the weakest of us, even through our failing words, our stammering tongue. He will make disciples. Are you doing this? The last application is another question. Are we doing this? Chapelwood Baptist Church, are we doing this? Is this our highest goal and our mission as a collected local body of believers? Because notice, he doesn't call one disciple up at a time and say, hey, go make disciples, Peter. Go make disciples, Matthew. Go make disciples, John, and go on. He brings his disciples together and he tells them together, go make disciples. It's a local body of faithful brothers to Jesus that are told to go make disciples. So, local body of faithful brothers and sisters to Jesus, are we going and making disciples? I think yes, in one sense we are. We support Alicia Gunn and her ministry to make disciples among the nations, the refugee women here through Indy Internationals. We support Plant Indy, which is a church planting network here in the city that specifically targets the dark spots in the city where there's no gospel proclaiming churches. We support a seminary that raises up and equips pastors, gospel ministers to go preach the gospel and raise up other disciples. So yes, at the same time, we just need to keep it at the front of our mind. We need to press into this command that everything, every way we look, we want to see the nations know Jesus. That should be our goal. And so we should put our heart, our resources, our finances, everything we have towards seeing the nations, all peoples, your neighbor, your coworker, everyone, the people across the street, people up the road, everyone know Jesus. That's our mission. This is our King's commission. So let us keep that at the front of our mind, friends. Now, I started by saying to make disciples is to make a convert. I stand by that. I'm not changing my mind. I stand by that. But it doesn't end there. There's more to it. The job's not done. There's two things still left to do. First, baptize. We baptize all believers. 
this shows us that there is not a disciple in the New Testament category that has not been baptized. It means all disciples are to be baptized. Of course, we need to know what is a disciple. Matthew 12, you go there in a different time. I'm just going to tell you. Sum it up. Disciple is one who hears the word of Jesus, who understands the word of Jesus, and who obeys the word of Jesus. Those are the disciples. That is who we baptize. And notice, how do we baptize them? In the name, singular, name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most explicit references in Scripture to the Trinity. And it's linked to baptism because it shows us that it is God who saves the triune God. It is the Father, it's by His will, it's through the blood of the Son, and it's effected by the Spirit. Or better yet, it's through adoption to the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. Our salvation is a work of God in all of His three persons. And so we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But still, we're not done. There's more to it. It's not just baptizing disciples. It's teaching them. It's teaching them. Making disciples is a long process. And it is a personal process. The word here, it carries the idea of a teaching mentor. Imagine someone sitting with his students around him giving instruction, but also spending time with them, modeling for them, giving them wisdom, giving them experience, giving them friendship, giving them instruction. It has a relationship implied between the teacher and those with him. I don't know if you are picking up on anything, but that sounds like somebody we know. It's Jesus. It's exactly what the, the teacher, which according to Matthew 23, he is the one teacher, and now he's going to send his disciples to do more teaching, side note. Nonetheless, it is what the one teacher has done and modeled through all the accounts of the gospel. Think of, think of him. He's always with his disciples teaching them. He's sitting with them. He's eating with them. He's taking them aside and he's teaching them his sayings and what they mean. It is a personal, intimate relationship between the teacher and those who learn. Chapter 5 of Matthew, we have the Sermon on the Mount. The scene is not described like that of a revival. As much as I love George Whitfield, it's not George Whitfield. It's not a pastor standing out there with 10,000 people before him projecting for them. No, listen to Matthew. He records, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Same word here, pressed in, came near. Came to him, and he opened his mouth and began, or, and taught them. He discipled them relationally, intimately. He taught them how to follow him. And it's all relational. It's all centered around Jesus. The point is that the discipleship, this teaching in discipleship, is to teach people of Jesus 
to see people trust Jesus, we talked about that a second ago, and now to walk with people as they follow Jesus. That's discipleship. Teach people of Jesus, see people trust Jesus, and walk with people as they follow Jesus. We don't just see people profess Christ and leave them alone. We baptize them. And we don't just baptize them, we walk with them on the arduous journey through the mountaintops and the valleys, showing them, encouraging them, learning from them how to follow Jesus. It is instructional, and there should be aspects of instruction, and it is personal and a relationship. And so, again, application questions. How are we doing on this? Are we discipling one another? Are we meeting older men? Are you taking in younger men and, and teaching them and giving them your wisdom that you've learned over the years and how to face life and its trials faithfully following Jesus? In, in, in the pastoral epistles, Paul explains that's what older men are to do and, younger, and older women. Older women, are you taking in young women, teaching them how to faithfully follow Jesus through all the ups and downs that life might throw at them? Are we discipling our wives, husbands? Are you doing what Christ does with his bride and washing her with the word to present her blameless? Parents, are we teaching our children the riches of God, the reality of a holy God, and the, the pain and result of our sin and our need for a savior? Are we teaching our children the gospel? Are we discipling? Are we discipling brothers and sisters? Are we discipling husbands and wives, fathers to children? Are we discipling? Friends, discipleship is essential. It is the last command by our, it's the only command by our risen Savior, but it's the last command in Matthew. It is his last words. It is essential. It is the mission of the church. It is the king's commission. There's a reason it's right beside the reigning king. Not only will he do it, but it is the king with all authority saying it will be done. It is our king's commission. So remember, we can do this. We can do it. If you feel weak in it, that's okay. Expected, even. Because remember our first picture. Back over here. That is us the weak disciples who worshiped and doubted. But don't forget the second picture. Our king is reigning. He has all authority and power, even the power to use you and me and our stammering tongues to preach and to speak and to learn and to teach of the good news of this risen king. We can, with one another, make disciples through the power of Christ. And not only does, is it that, not only does he have the power to make disciples, to use us weak disciples for his glory, he doesn't just leave, instead he never does. He gives us his power and his presence. The last panel, this last picture, completing this picture is that he is the with you king. So look back, at, look back with me at Jesus' last words in, in verse 20. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. I think those might be my favorite words in the Bible. Jesus' last words are the quiet confidence that we need to press on in this mission. It's one thing to know that he's going to do it. But it's another thing to know that he's with you while you do it. Think of the disciples. They just heard these words. Before they heard these words, they're like, yeah, we can do this. All right, Jesus, you're with us. They haven't heard these words yet. But they know who is Jesus according to Matthew 1.23. He's Emmanuel, God with us. So we can do it because you're right here, Jesus. You're with us. We've spent time with you. We've learned from you. You've discipled us. They have experienced Emmanuel. And now he's leaving. And we see even while he's still there, they're still doubting while they're beholding him. So they've got to be scared. And these parting words, the reason these parting words are so powerful to them and to us is because it shows us that he is with you always. He is the with you king. The all-sovereign, all-glorious king is with you, the weak disciple. He says, and behold, I, actually it says, I myself. He's emphasizing it. I myself am with you all the days, literally, all the days, every day, the highs and the lows, the success and the failure, the hard days, the cloudy days and the sunny days. He is with you every day until the end of the age. He himself. I think that this must have been the promise that Paul had in mind and that encouraged and encouraged him when he wrote 2 Timothy 4.17. He wrote, But the Lord, Jesus, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Even in Paul's last days, not long before he's taken to be executed, in the midst of him being abandoned by everyone who should have been with him and hurt by the coppersmith, he was not alone because the Lord stood by him and strengthened him. So that, keep going in that verse, so that through him, through Paul, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles, all the nations, same word, might hear it. He stood by him and he strengthened him for this reason. For this reason, so that all the peoples would hear. And Paul clung to it. Friends, this is the promise of Jesus our King. The reigning King, the sending King, is the with you King. His real presence, he himself is with you. I want to leave you with a story of a missionary that speaks of this verse in a way that, other than Paul, I don't know if anybody can. His name was John G. Patton. And he served in the South Pacific, close to Australia, on an island multiple, but the one the most time, on an island with cannibals. He lost his wife six months after landing there. His wife, who was pregnant, had a son named after him, lost his wife six months later, and the son a week later. He dug their graves with his own hands. 
He was chased by people wanting to kill him for preaching Jesus. There's a, there's a measles outbreak in which the missionaries are blamed for. Thousands of people died because of this. Missionaries being blamed for it. And he writes, during this crisis, I felt generally calm and firm of soul, standing erect and with my whole weight on the promise, lo, I am with you always. Precious promise. How often I adore Jesus for it and rejoice in it. Blessed be his name. That is how Jesus leaves us. That is the quiet confidence he supplies us with. We're not powerless. We're not incapable. And we're not alone. For Jesus is with us always. We can know that the king's commission will be accomplished through his power as the reigning king and with his presence as the with you king. That's the whole picture. It's the picture of weak disciples, the picture of a reigning king, the picture of ascending king and the picture of a with you king that shows us our king's commission and comforts us that it can be accomplished through his power and by his presence with us. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe at our risen Savior the one who overcame sin, death, and Satan, the one with all authority, the one who sends us to do his work, and the one who is with us as we go forth. Lord, may you instill in our hearts, may you encourage us to understand and to work out your mission so that all will know of Jesus so that all will see the reigning king, and so that all will have the with you king. For your glory, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.